Well, good morning, Forest View. Thank you so much for joining us. This morning, we are kicking off a brand new series called Now What? There's a concept in uh, architecture theory, uh, and it's this idea called liminal space. These are the spaces that we encounter that are transition spaces. They are not places that you're made to feel at home, and they are not even places where your eyes or, or, or your feelings are supposed to be drawn towards some sort of feeling or concept. Rather, are, they are the places where it's all about moving you from one place to the other. It's about moving from point A to point B. And so when we talk about a liminal space, you are talking about hallways or corridors. You might be talking about um, the, the, part, the channels or the tunnels in a subway station or a train station. Uh, you might be talking about parking lots. You might be talking about the escalators or the big entrance way that you go into in a building. Uh, you might also be talking about airports. These are places that it's not meant to feel at home. The entire idea is to move you from one place to another. And for many architectures, or um, uh, for, for many architects, they love to look at these things and they actually are very critical of them because they think that they're bad examples of bad architecture. And so you actually see this significant movement where they are talking about, talking about how do we reclaim these, these spaces to use them in more efficient, not even more efficient, more beautiful ways, in ways that shape us and, and help move us and grow us. We also experience liminal spaces in our lives. Uh, these are the transition points where it's the, the awkward in-between where you're not sure, am I here or am I there? It's, am I with this person or am I not with this person? Am I working for this company? Am I still working for this company? There are these awkward in-between times that we all experience and encounter in our lives. They can be scary. They can be frustrating. And at the same time, they can also be an incredible opportunity for us to learn and grow. Cognitive behavioral therapists and neuroscientists in general have found that there are some significant things that they've found in terms of how we react to massive disruptions in our lives. That all of us, we develop different habits and routines. And when you experience something that kind of derails all of that, think of a move or a job change, or some significant life change that happens to you, you are susceptible and open to breaking old habits and entering into new habits. And now it's interesting that in liminal spaces that we encounter most of our life, whether it's the, the corridors of a train station or wherever it is, is also the place where we most often will see tons and tons of advertisements. And this is absolutely because they realize that as you are moving, they are psychologically impacting the way that you react to their product. Liminal space can be a place that we just simply endure and just wait for it to be over with. Or it can be a place that changes us and grows us and opens us up to new possibilities and new ventures in the world. Over this past year, we've all been living in a liminal space. We call it the COVID-19 pandemic. It has been this massive disruption to our lives, and we're not sure, is it over? Is it not? Is life normal? Is it not? We have been walking through this bizarre season of trying to figure out where we are and what life is supposed to look like. 
And all of us are kind of looking to the end of it, going like, if we could just get to there, if it would just hurry up and be over, then we could get back to the way life is supposed to be. And yet, there's this other thing that pulls us towards something. Or, and yet, there's this other liminal space that all of us have to walk in if we're a Christian, if we're someone who has committed our lives to the following of Jesus. There's this expression that we talked about last week, Christ is risen, and we all proclaim Christ is risen indeed. And we want to ask the question, now what? Christ is risen. Jesus is alive. And essentially, the history of Christianity has been how we as Christians have reacted to this beautiful truth and reality that Jesus is alive. Essentially, if you go back and ask throughout all of history, what unites, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's Jesus is alive. Now what? What does that call us to? What does that invite us to? And my hope with this series is not to give you a list of all sorts of things that you need to do. Because we've, walk, we've walked through that this past year. There have been countless articles about all the different things that you should be doing right now. And if you're anything like me, you're tired. And part of you just wants this to be over. But my hope is, as we begin to ask this question as a community, now what? Th that we would begin to play with these ideas, experiment with these ideas. Because as we are maybe nearing the end of this liminal space called COVID-19, we might discover in a more rich and meaningful way what it means to be followers of Jesus. And this liminal space we've walked through of COVID-19, the pandemic, has awakened us to changes that can happen in our lives. Habits that maybe we can abandon or routines and systems that maybe we don't need to have given ourselves over to so much. That life can actually look different. And so throughout this series, my invitation for you is to ask that question, now what? And to play with these ideas, experiment with these ideas, and have some fun with them. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to Acts chapter 2. We are going to be looking at verses 42 to 47, uh, not just today, but throughout this entire series. Because this is what, for some of the first Christians, this was their response. Jesus is alive. Now what? Here's what they did. And we don't want this to simply be a description of what they did in terms of like, well, that's what they did, and we just do whatever we want. And at the same time, we don't want it to be prescriptive as though we are somehow trying to recreate, do exactly what they were doing. Instead, let this be an opportunity for us to join in, in the thing that God was doing in their hearts and their lives at that particular moment as they asked, God, what's next for us? And I want that to be the same thing that happens for us. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, 
praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This morning, I specifically want to zoom in on Acts 2, verse 32. I'll just read that verse for you one more time. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, Next week, we're going to talk about fellowship, breaking of bread, and a prayer. But this week, I want to talk about what it means for them to devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Now, this often can come across. I've heard other pastors speak on this passage before. And often what happens is, is this can turn into the pastor's plea or claim for job security. They're like, they, they, back in the first Christians, they would listen to sermons and you need to listen to sermons too. So make sure you're paying attention and please make sure you're showing up on Sundays. But that is not the case with this particular passage. This is not a plea from, uh, for me or from any other pastor to simply say, hey, you need to make sure you're coming to church and listening to my sermons and don't you dare doze off. This is instead talking about the heart the interests, and the thing that the early church needed to move them forward so that they could truly respond with a now what response to the resurrection in their world. Now, it begins by saying they devoted themselves to. Now, the word devoted is a word that has kind of two connotations when you read it in the original Greek. It starts off with this idea of consistency, and so for them, there was a routine and a rhythm to this. It was probably something they were doing daily. They would gather together and they would listen to the apostles teach. And it also had, so it was consistency and it was also persistency. Now, I know all of you grammar police, you are going to flood my inbox. Persistency is not a word. But that's one of the benefits of being a pastor is that sometimes to get your point across, you get to make up words. So that's what I'm doing. There, there's actually this kind of old phrase. It's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, even though there's no evidence he actually said it. Um, and it says that, uh, um, go out into the world and, and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And I like to add on to that. Go out into the world, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, even if you have to make them up. But, but devotion is about consistency, and it's about persistency. It, it, this was something that they were committed to doing, even if it meant opposition, even if it meant going out of their way, even if this was something they had to fight for. And I don't mean fight other people for, I mean that in the terms of it was a battle within themselves. They knew that this was what they needed, and so they were willing to go out of their way for it. Which brings us to the next question. What was so great about the apostles' teaching. There's an interesting story that you'll find a few chapters later in chapter four. Peter and John, two of the apostles, they've gone out, they've been proclaiming the good news of Jesus and they actually heal a man. And this gets them into all sorts of trouble because they say it's actually not us that's healed this man, it's actually Jesus who has healed this man. Which is a radical thing to say when this is, you are saying it to a whole bunch of people who just recently put that particular man, Jesus, to death on a cross. And so they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the, the religious elite, and they have to plead their case. And they, they unapologetically just say, we ha can't stop talking about Jesus. 
And eventually the, the religious elite who are essentially looking at them and trying them and listening to their story and trying to figure out what to do with them, they decide, okay, I guess we should just let these guys go. Now, interesting, they've, had, they've essentially been put on trial. They've been listening to them, to, to them talk about what they're saying and what they're proclaiming. And, and this is the thing. I love that this is their response. The religious elite, they've watched these two guys. And these are like the two highest up in Jesus's, of Jesus' apostles. I mean, John and Peter, you do not get any higher in the ranking. These are Jesus' closest associates. And look what it says about them. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Now, if you are a professional teacher, a preacher, all those kinds of things, the, the last thing you want from all the critiques that you're getting is for them to suddenly say, hmm, that came across as unschooled and ordinary. And yet that is the impression these two men leave on the religious elite. In fact, the thing that stands out to them has nothing to do with how smart or how articulate they were. The thing that stands out about them is one, their courage, and number two, that they had been with Jesus. Turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, and so uh, those of you who are familiar with the Jesus story, um, Jesus, he has uh, ascended to the Father where he reigns with him. And so he's left his disciples. He's given his Holy Spirit to them to lead them and guide them. Actually, that hasn't even happened yet in this particular story. And so there's 11 of them. There should be 12. Um, but uh, Judas betrayed Jesus and, and had died. And so they are in this place where they're like, we need to find another disciple or another person to bring on as the apostle. We need to have that 12 number. That's important. And so they go, okay, who are we going to bring on? Because we realize we need to go out and we need to proclaim and share this message with the world. And so immediately, uh, you can imagine, they would go through the list. What are the things you want in that particular person? Just your own self. You can go through these different things in your own mind. What are the things that you would want? Well, really good story talk or storyteller. Really good at just connecting with people, just great stories that just, oh, I, I feel like that's my story. Just these, these kinds of things, really knowledgeable and tons of information, maybe an incredible memory of the scriptures. Now, now get this, this is their, what they look through and this is their criteria. Verse 21, therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. The, the emphasis for, for being an apostle, the, the thing that they want most is not their quality of a speaker or preacher or teacher. It's about, hey, they need to have been with Jesus. They need to have a closeness, an awareness, an intimacy with him. 
And then actually I love what happens after this because they realize they've got two guys who seem like, hey, they're both there the entire time. They don't have them like have a, like a preach off against each other. Instead, what they decide to do is they go, oh, we'll just cast lots. Essentially, they're like, we'll flip a coin because both of these guys are good. They're both there. They've both given their hearts to this message. They're both, they've been with Jesus. They both witnessed his resurrection. That that's what is most important. For the first Christians, they were not interested in what they knew. They were interested in who they knew. So often for us, we can get so caught up in wanting to find life advice. And you, you can see this in, in all sorts of different places where there's sermon series on God's guide to better finances or whatever it is. And it's not that these things are entirely wrong. It's just that I think that so often these are great advice, but they're advice that just about anyone can find and anyone can give. I mean, go online. You can find a motivational speaker or a teacher in a school or wherever it is to go and give you this kind of information. But the first Christians, they weren't interested in information. And they weren't interested in finding good life advice. They wanted to know, hey, how do we live this out? Who was this Jesus? What was he like? And what is he inviting us to do and be in our lives right now? My invitation for you as you enter into this new season, this liminal space, this kind of transition, like, I don't know if things are coming back or what, but whatever it is going to look like over the next number of months to begin to develop habits where you are pursuing teaching and learning to understand more and more who Jesus is. Because ultimately that is the point of it all. So often we can get caught up in all the things that we think we are supposed to know. And we can completely miss out on the fact that Christianity is not about a list of all the things that you're supposed to know, but it's about one person and about knowing him. Now, a few other things that I think are really interesting and important to highlight from this passage in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The emphasis on the word they that growing and learning more about who Jesus is is never something done in isolation, or at least rarely. It's always something that is meant to be experienced in community, and quite honestly, it works best there. And honestly, it makes it a whole lot more fun, too. And so maybe in your life, it's be with people, or at least whether it's through Zoom or when you can start going on walks or whatever it is, to be doing your best to be committing with people and being intentional about that time, about learning who Jesus is when you're with them. Maybe it's taking time to read through part of a gospel together. Or maybe it's identifying people in your life who you see just a deep intimacy, a connection with Jesus. They know Jesus. And begin to ask them about their relationship with him. In our part of the world, we have so much information 
coming at us. And as Christians, we have so much information available to us. Uh, whether it's all the incredible books that are being written, whether it's everything that's available on podcasts and different sermons that are now available on YouTube and whatever else. These are all great and incredible tools. But at the very heart of it is that we know that this is not simply about us building up our knowledge, but rather is about directing us to know Jesus more. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to a community that essentially there's a lot of argument and debate, and most of it comes from a place of one group thinking they know what's right and the other group doesn't. It's about debate, about knowledge, and who thinks they know what, and they are an information-rich community. But Paul calls them out and says, you might know a lot, but you don't know God. You don't understand his heart. And specifically, this comes to a front in a debate about food that had been sacrificed to idols, whether it was okay to eat or not okay to eat. And so you have these different groups arguing these different positions. Yes, it's okay to eat because of this, 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 this. And here's my argument, and I'll lay it out all logically. And then there's another group that's saying, no, no, it's not okay, and here's why, and this is why, this, 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 this. And here's what Paul says. In chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Knowledge puffs up while love builds up. That's how you know if you're actually learning. That's how you know if you're actually growing. It's not about how much information you can spout off. It's not about how many debates you can win with the people who have a different theology or maybe no theology. It's not about pointing out all the ways in which one person is right or your group is right, right and this other group is wrong. It's not even about spouting off Bible verses, although that's an amazing thing to be able to memorize scripture and, and just have it speak to you in your heart, in your mind throughout the day. But at the very heart of it is, is this making me more loving? Because when you are around Jesus, when you are moving closer to Jesus, you will become more like Jesus. And ultimately, the love test is this making me more loving? Is this making me more compassionate? Is this making me more generous? Is this making me more forgiving? Is this making me more willing to, to stand up and speak out, not out of pride, but out of genuine care for others? That's when you know it's good teaching. The first Christians, they were not interested in what they knew they were interested in who they knew. In this season, in this liminal space, we are all living through and walking through. The now what question is, is where are ways in your life that you are devoting yourself to learning more and more who Jesus is? Where are places you can continue to grow and to learn and ultimately 
develop in the ways of love that reflect his heart into this world.